Our text is Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 5 at verse 8 and continuing through 6-9. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel at the matter. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the profit of the land is for all. Even the king is served from the field. He who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? The sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not permit him to sleep. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. But those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there is nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. And this also is a severe evil. Just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? All his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor, in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. As for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires, yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. If a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he, for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, and its name is covered with darkness. Though it has not seen the sun or known anything, this has more rest than that man. Even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness, do not all go to one place. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for having uh, had Solomon live out his life proving these words. We ask you now, Lord, to open our ears, open our minds, uh, make us alert to hear your voice. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if I'll tire of this or I'll tire you of this, but I'll again give you a brief summary of where, where we've traveled so far in Ecclesiastes. First two messages, uh, they present opposing worldviews. They cover Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3. Uh, the first portion, vain repetition, 
that goes from the first verse of 1 up through 223. And that has to do with just the repetition of life, how uh, it can become wearisome to anybody, including us. The next portion is purpose and meaning, and that's the last three verses in chapter 2 plus chapter 3. And that has to do with God, how uh, in the first portion God is not taken into account, but once you take God into account, you see now there is purpose and meaning not only to life, but everything in life. The next two, the last two weeks, uh, the first was to value people. That was in Ecclesiastes 4, and that showed us errors ways by which man oppresses and violates the relations with other people, oppressing them, envying them, being greedy, selfish. And yet it also spoke of good things, how we can rely upon one another for comfort, for strength in times of adversity. It ended, though, saying don't take that too far because you can look to people for salvation and you ought not. Uh, It's common in our day to look to political leaders to save us. And the last, last time was revere God, and that was in Ecclesiastes 5, 1 through 7. We talked about listening for his voice, about watching what we say, always being aware of the fact that we're in God's presence, and especially when we come into God's house. Now, today's message, the title is Seek Satisfaction, so it seems kind of selfish, kind of man-centered, but it's really not. It does center upon God. As a matter of fact, both the text, the structure of it, and the content of it center on God, and we'll see that. But our title reflects something that God wants from us. He wants us to seek satisfaction. That's why we seek it as much as we do, sometimes erroneously, but yet God has given us that hunger, that desire, and he expects us to satisfy it. Now, normally, I kind of avoid the technical aspects of text. You know, with uh, criticism of literature has come a whole wealth of information about how we should interpret the Bible, read the Bible, study the Bible. And uh, frankly, I, for three reasons, don't typically get into that. First, very few people are interested in that. Second, it's often not appropriate for the context. We can really preach the message without having to understand all that. And third, I myself am weak in it. I love theology, but I'm not a Bible scholar. But sometimes these technical aspects are beautiful, and they present a backdrop to your understanding of the uh, structure of the text and the content of it that is very helpful. So here, uh, and it's been recent, it was only really in 89 that a man published a paper on this and and people began to kind of see it as clearly as they do now. Like I said in the first uh, lecture, Ecclesiastes is widely varying in interpretation and I gave you some of those interesting and some ridiculous quotes about what people think of Ecclesiastes. But uh, here I think it's right on and so let me share it with you. A man by the name of Daniel Fredericks in 1989 published an article and it was entitled Chiasm and Parallel Structure in Koheleth, 510 to 69. That alerted people to this. Other people have studied it, and now we've kind of expanded the chiasm to 58 through 69, just a couple verses earlier. But uh, the chiasm, I think, itself is kind of beautiful. I will post it here on, uh, on the pulpit, if I can get my tape off. 
and then I'll walk through it. Now, I don't know if everybody can read that, but if you can't, I apologize. You ought to sit closer. Uh, first, a chiasm is a structure that advances into the text and then back out of the text. You go in deep to the center of it, which is the point of it, and then you back out of it. And so what I'll show you is that our text today begins and ends with people who cannot be satisfied. The next inner portion is people who do not enjoy life. And then two questions are asked. What is good and what is evil? And right at the heart, in answer to the what is good, is the text that we ought to enjoy our lives. And seek satisfaction is along those lines. Now, let me share with you why this is a chiasm, what, what this Daniel Fredericks saw. And uh, y- you see it, but then you don't really see it. You don't knit it all together. But if you want to open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 5, it kind of be- can become more clear. First, in Ecclesiastes 5.8, our first verse, if you see the oppression of the poor. So you see the poor emphasized. Well, if you go to 6.8, verse 8 in the next chapter, you see also that it it mentions the poor. What does the poor man have? Then in 5.10, you see he who loves uh, silver will not be satisfied. So we're talking about satisfaction. The same thing in verse 7 of chapter 6. The soul is not satisfied. You see the same theme. So there's poor, then there's this satisfaction, not being satisfied. In verse 11 of 5, you see, so what profit have the owners? And yet down here in uh, six eight, you see what does the poor man have? Those are synonymous with one another, analogous. Then in eleven five eleven, you see to see them with their eyes. You see that you see with the eyes. And then if you go to six nine, better is the sight of the eyes. You see Solomon is using the same phrases and he's weaving them together. Let's move to the inner, the inner ones, the one about enjoyment. In five. 13, beginning at 5.13, you see in verse 14 that he begets a son, whereas over in 6.3, the man begets a hundred children. And then you have in verse 5.15, as he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return, you have coming and returning. And if you look at 6.4, you see coming in vanity, departing in darkness. Again, coming and going. In uh, Verse 17, 517, you see it mentions darkness. All his days eats in darkness. And then if you go down to 6.4, you see, again, darkness. For it comes in vanity and departs in darkness. What is good? 518, here we now have good. And then at 6.1, you have evil. Good and evil, contrasted. So here you have a contrast. In verse 18, God has given, God gives, which God gives him at the end of 18. And yet down here in uh, verse, two, or verse 2 of 6, you see a man to whom God has given. So you have God giving, God giving. And then you have in 19, you have the gift of God. This is the gift of God. Whereas in verse 2, you have this is an evil affliction. So again, you've got a lot of the same things, but you've got a few marked contrasts. Good and evil, gift and affliction. So that's why this chiasm works. And right in the center is 520. For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. This chiasm, although it exists in seven lines on this, 
we can collapse down to three main points, and that's what I'll walk through now. And then I'll end with kind of a different point. But the main points of the chiasm are the pursuit of wealth does not satisfy. Both of our things about not being satisfied uh, revolve around wealth, worldly wealth. And in that, the pursuit of wealth, the attainment of wealth, does not ultimately satisfy, that leaves a lot of dissatisfied people. And dissatisfied people, just by definition, don't enjoy life. So that leads to the lack of enjoyment that most people have, wealthy or not. Then the third point is verse uh, is 520, and that is it is good and fitting and possible to enjoy life. God wouldn't tell us to enjoy life if it's not possible. And so it is. Now let's walk through these texts. I've already given you kind of the highlights of them, but let's dig through them. I just wanted to show you why the chiasm is real. So 5.8. If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent perversion of justice and righteousness in a province, this is the third occurrence already in Ecclesiastes of this concept of injustice, oppression and injustice. What is interesting, though, each instance is merely a foil to introduce some truth. For instance, the first one is in 3.16, and there it's only introduced to tell us that God, with God alone, is ultimate justice. He isn't, he isn't crying for us, frankly. He isn't crying for the people of earth. He's just educating us. What is it that Solomon and God, through Solomon, wants us to know? That with God alone comes ultimate justice. That's the first example. The second example is in 4.1, and that's where I just referred to it. It's an example of our inhumanity to one another, our mistreatment of one another. It's the first thing Solomon says about that, about how we relate to one another. We don't relate to one another well. If you look around at the world, we mistreat one another quite a bit. So those are the first two examples. Now here, what is it that is the lesson here? If you see the oppression of the poor and the violent provision of justice and righteousness in a province, do not marvel. Now what does it mean to marvel? Right? It's, it's slack jaw. I'm so shocked. I'm so surprised. So what Solomon is saying is, I don't care what depth of evil, what uh, heinous injustice you've seen, it should not surprise you, a Christian, because you know that sin fills this earth, and you know that it fills our hearts. It is no shocking surprise to see it fill our land, to see it be inflicted upon one another. So we're not to marvel. And frankly, we are not to question the goodness of God because of it. And that's what many do. Many never think deeply about the injustice on this earth until it affects them. Then their fragile, superficial faith is just dashed on the rocks. They just lose whatever marginal faith they had in a good God because God wouldn't treat me like this. I don't deserve this. And so they must infer that anybody else on earth to whom bad things did happen prior to that moment did deserve it. It's a logical inference. And that's the way most people live. They just live with this tacit acceptance of the fact that people are just getting what they deserve. It's only when it happens to them that they realize that that wasn't right. Job's friends are perfect examples. 
Okay, next verse, 9. Moreover, the prophet of the land. Oh, and then this is beautiful. For high official watches over high official, and higher officials are over them. Moreover, the prophet of the land is for all, even the king is served from the field. Uh, who of us can't see that this is government oppression, that this is government invasion? Uh, it, it is them going much farther than God intends in properly ruling over the world. Higher official over high official over high official means corruption. Opportunity. These are opportunities. And so even the king is served from that which comes from the field, meaning government, we know this, government doesn't produce anything on its own. It must thrive on the production of others, the production of the people. And so we know that that is abused. In verse 10, he who loves silver will not be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. This also is vanity. Uh, I was asking the kids this morning, we were looking for it, and Hannah found it immediately. And it was, uh, what is that quote about the leech has two daughters and they cry out, give, give. That's the society we live in. There are many people like that. They just want to leech on whatever other people have. And there's never enough. You give it to them and it just gets sucked down the drain because they're wasteful people. And you just can't ever make everybody wealthy. And actually, that was a, a topic of a, of a paper that we were going to get today if we were going to have lunch here from Phil. But uh, it's a thought question about dealing with the poor and the issues that uh, we face as a society because of the presence of the poor. In, in Russia, several years ago, they were lamenting the extensive corruption that they had throughout government. And so many blamed the poor salaries that government bureaucrats were paid. And so they began to increase the pay of government bureaucrats all across Russia. As a matter of fact, over the last seven or eight years, the pay for Russian bureaucrats has gone up 40%, whereas the general population only 20%. But, sad to say, corruption has not declined. I mean, it's obviously unbelievers that advocate ideas like that. And that's why it breaks my heart to see Thomas Sowell advocating stuff like that. Because I love Thomas Sowell. His, his conservative economic political criticisms of the left are wonderful. But when he's advocating paying our representatives and senators a million dollars a year to prevent them from becoming corrupt and, from get, and to get the best people in government, I think that's just so wrong-headed I can't begin to... He, he doesn't seem to allow the Bible to dictate what is and isn't possible in this world. Uh, 5.11, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. Uh, the creation of wealth leads to the consumption of wealth. That's logical, but for the creator of wealth, it can be sad to see all of their wealth being consumed sometimes against their will, sometimes without their being profiting from it. Uh, that's one of the ironies, and I believe I've shared this before, but one of the ironies about the Civil War in this country was that the South had misappropriated Eli Whitney's cotton gin concept. I mean, they, they basically took his concept, ignored his patent rights, and just began developing them all over the South. It was wrong. They stole from him. He then started making weapons, and those weapons were used to eventually conquer the South. I mean, I know there are pro-South sympathizers here. I am myself in part. But they got what they deserved 
at least from the perspective that they were misappropriating northern technology and not giving them their fair due. So I just find it ironic that Eli Whitney, though he died before the Civil War, of course, uh, his weapons manufacturers and his mass production of weapons just really are what led to the loss that the South sustained. Many reasons, I know. I, I, we, could, we could go on for hours on that topic. But uh, now, the uh, creation of wealth leads to the consumption of wealth. Now, you might think that this is a good or an evil. It's really a mixture of both. Uh, some of the consumption of the wealth could be a very, very good, wise consumption of the wealth. It was created for that purpose. Other could be wasteful. could be just vandals destroying things just because they're envious of what other people have. But uh, I like how Solomon puts it here. So what profit have the owners except to see them with their eyes? It's obvious that he's implying the loss of wealth where the owner doesn't benefit from it. And what, what can he do but look upon his... Uh, wealth and be happy that it had been produced, but sad that it's now being squandered or lost or stolen. So that's the first portion on people not being satisfied, and that's in chapter 5. Let's skip to chapter 6 and work back with that last section. We'll start at uh, verse 7. All the labor of man is for his mouth, and yet the soul is not satisfied. Uh, The mouth and eating is synonymous with uh, all of life. It's, it's our enjoyment of life. It's living. So when you see in Ecclesiastes him referring to eating and the mouth, it's really talking about how we live. It's our lifestyle. It's, it's the uh, socio- socioeconomic culture we live in. So this is pretty much pertaining to all material goods. So what he's saying is that all the labor of man is for his well-being on this earth, material goods, yet the soul is not satisfied. It does not satisfy and we had a good illustration of that earlier, I believe, in the intro. In 6.8, For what more has the wise man than the fool? What does the poor man have who knows how to walk before the living? These are two rhetorical questions. The Hebrew is a little odd. Uh, our New King James has one rendering of this text. It is rendered differently elsewhere. But the first question, I think, is fairly easy to understand. The second one is much more difficult. But the first one, What more has the wise man than the fool? Solomon asks that elsewhere in our text in Ecclesiastes. And so what he's really saying is what fundamentally distinguishes people from one another? If, if being wise at one end of the spectrum and being a fool at the other end of the spectrum still really can't get us any nearer to satisfying the hunger of our soul, what hope have we? That's really what those questions are saying. So you know that the answer isn't, it can't be in the stuff. It's been ruled out. In 6.9, we have a better than proverb. We've already seen several of these. I've never called attention to them, but we had one in 4.3, and 6.3. We'll see a whole bunch of them in 7. I figured I'd wait until then to kind of cover the concept. But here it's not even a better than proverb. It's a worse than proverb. But you know how you can reverse the greater than, less than sign and then reverse the operands and you have the same thing. That's what's true here. He's really introducing a worse-than proverb, but we use the term better-than proverb because it's, it's just consistent. They're the flip side of one another. But so this better-than proverb says, better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. In other words, I can see this. It's tangible. 
Whereas desire, oh, that could describe what? It could describe anything. And if you are wanting to only be pleased by what you desire, not even not, let alone what you can see, then, oh, you're, you're hopelessly lost. You can't hope to satisfy those types of hungers. But what he's saying is that better, comparatively, is the sight of the eyes. But then he goes on to say, this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. So I ask you, what is he commenting on when he says that? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of desire. This also is vanity and grasping for the wind. I believe he may be referring to both. Even though the wise man is better than the fool, even though the sight of the eyes is better than the wanderings of our desires, still all grasping for the wind and vanity. And also, uh, just in passing, this is the last example of this phrase, vanity and grasping for the wind. It shows that we're coming to the end of the first half of Ecclesiastes. I talked about that in the first, uh, in the first message. So that covers the uh, satisfaction, and now let's go on to the enjoyment. And we'll go back to chapter 5 and start at verse 13. There is a severe evil which I have seen under the sun, riches kept for their owner to his hurt. What is meant by the word hurt? Riches kept by the owner to his hurt. I believe we see a hint at it up in 17. All his days he also eats in darkness. He has much sorrow, sickness, and anger. These are all bad things. And so I believe that is... uh, examples of the hurt, the type of hurt that we're talking about, relational hurt, emotional hurt, physical hurt, spiritual hurt, all of these things, very real. They are affecting this person, this rich person, because he's not getting any satisfaction from his wealth. He's only being hurt by his wealth. In verse 14, but those riches perish through misfortune. When he begets a son, there's nothing in his hand. So see, the rich man here loses his wealth. And when a rich man loses his wealth, that's not like a poor man losing his wealth. A rich man identifies with his wealth. He has used that wealth to buffer him from a world which in many ways doesn't like him. It will say it does to get his stuff, but oh, how the mighty have fallen. So when the rich fall, they fall much farther than the poor. And so they feel it much more. Their their identities are lost. As he came from his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and he shall take nothing from his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. Everyone departs without anything in their hands. But who's going to be more sad? Now the bumper sticker says, he who dies with the most toys wins. But the sad truth is you still die, and none of your toys go with you. And so I don't think they understand the rules of the game, the people that place those bumper stickers on their cars. So see, the richest people are those that probably have the most to lose in death because none of that stuff can come with them. I mean, that's why the Egyptian pharaohs built those those big pyramids. I'm taking it with me. I'm actually taking people with me too, you know? So then they wall off a bunch of slaves and kill them so that they can serve the the dead Pharaoh in his next life. They thought they could take their wealth with them, but they didn't. Grave robbers got it after they left. So 
Now, Solomon declares this to be a severe evil in 16. 516 says, and this also is a severe evil, just exactly as he came, so shall he go. And what profit has he who has labored for the wind? So see, the severe evil, the severe evil is the loss of all the stuff, but yet it is the loss of all the stuff from a materialist worldview. It's the end of everything. It's the every, everything I value. It's all gone now. And so these rich people on their deathbeds, what do they do? They've in many times, they've squandered relationships. They would never consider squandering money, but they squandered relationships. And so it's really as they're dying that they begin to realize that this wasn't something of ultimate value. And he has labored for the wind, meaning he grasped and grasped and grasped. He thought he had something, but he has nothing. And verse 17, all his days he also eats in darkness, and he has much sorrow and sickness and anger. Again, eats is a euphemism for life, and yet he has sorrow, sickness, and anger. And these wealthy people, famous people, fall from that height of power and fame and wealth, and yet what do they fall to? They fall to something less. What happens to the person who achieves the dream of their life at 22? 23, 24. They have nowhere to go but down. And sadly, many of them learn that. And so then they live a life of rapid dissipation and they die. I read the book by Tony Dungy, Quiet Strength, a few years ago. I don't think I've given this statistic before, this quote, but he's just starting with these young guys right in spring training. And his first thing is to just shock them shock them if he can into reality. And he says this. He says, within, uh, well, first he says, when football players leave the NFL, 65% of them have permanent injuries, permanent injuries that will never go away. 25% of them within one year have financial troubles. 50% of NFL divorces that occur occur within the first year of the players retiring from the game. 80%, 78% of players within two years from the time they retire from pro football are unemployed, bankrupt, or divorced. Almost 80%. Four out of five within two years have lost their money, have lost their jobs, have lost their wives. And a retired NFL players suicide rate is six times higher than the national average. Now, Tony Dungy was a Christian man, so, I mean, he's just laying it on the line for these young guys, but, of course, who would listen to that? They're all pumped. They want to make the team. They're going to go try out for this or that position, and so I'm sure they're deaf to that for the most part, but the wise of them must take that to heart. The Christian among them must take that to heart and integrate it into their thinking. What am I going to do when I leave football? Am I going to marry this gold-dinging woman that's after me? My wife was saying that she uh, has a friend who worked the uh, senior classic, the golf classic here at the country club. And there were many women there dressed to the tees. And they get, to, they get free access to the 19th hole to mingle with all those golfers after each of the rounds. I mean, these people are sought after. These people are famous. They're wealthy. I mean, these women go after them. So it's no wonder that Tiger Woods had however many women in his harem a few years ago when he fell from grace. He was being pursued by these women. 
And so he indulged, you know, not being a Christian, I guess it doesn't matter to some people. Now, one of the things that I want to say at this point, after we've got through all this stuff, is this last verse, all his days he also eats in darkness, he also has much sorrow and sickness and anger, uh, isn't being reformed. And understanding that God is sovereign in our lives, it is such a great burden off of us. We have no worries, no regrets, really. We might decide, deliberate over what we want to do in the present and the future. But when you look in the past, you're looking into his story. Even all the evil things you've done, that's part of his story. You want to be different today. You want to be different tomorrow. But you can't change the past. And it's just so freeing to let it go. It's all in God's domain. There is no time travel. I know sci-fi people love that, but there is no time travel. Never will be. God doesn't time travel. Why would he let us? So, now that's maybe another topic, yeah. Civil War, science fiction, time travel, okay. Let's keep a list. We'll talk about it after. Okay, now let's uh, cover the second portion of not enjoying life in chapter 6. And here it's from uh, verses 1 through 6. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor, so that he lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. Yet God does not give him power to eat of it, but a foreigner consumes it. This is vanity, and it is an evil affliction. A foreigner could also be stranger, so you don't have to think that this is some enemy invasion. This is just somebody that the guy didn't intend to have his stuff. That's what we're talking about. And so, if a man begets a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with goodness, or indeed he has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better than he. And then, for it comes in vanity and departs in darkness, its name is covered with darkness, though it has not seen the sun or known anything. This has more rest than that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice, but has not seen goodness. And so, historically, long life and children have been perceived as blessings. In every culture in the world, this has been true until our own time. Now, long life may be a blessing. Bad health in long life is horrific. You might want to kill yourself, and and many cultures want to allow that now. And so I don't think euthanasia advocates for other people would qualify there. I, I think you have to want to euthanize yourself to not see long life as a blessing. Uh, but uh, yet, both are eroding, and the desire for large families is eroding. People only want to live a long life if they can live it on their terms, if they can live it without worries about health extremes. It, they only want the proper number of children that can sit in a, a row uh, on a boat or on an airplane or in their car or something like that. You know, I mean, it's odd. We, we're in a culture now where having children is is deemed inappropriate by many. Uh, We had one child out in California, and we were oddballs. We were in this whole condo complex, and there are so few children in it. And uh, now we have four, and we're oddballs, aren't we? We have too few in Dominion. (laughs) And uh, so we, we have both of them, though, in all prior cultures being blessings. And yet... In this instance, this man has had a hundred children. He's lived 2,000 years, and he has no burial. 
It's just crazy. No burial is synonymous with being unloved, not respected, not wanted in your community. And uh, on the way in also, we were looking for a verse, and I'd referenced it once before in passing, but I could not find it, couldn't remember the name of the king that it referred to, but Phil saved me earlier, and it's Jehoram. And in Second Chronicles 21.20, we read this. Second Chronicles 21.20. Uh, I could read a lot because, oh, what, what God did to this man. I mean, he was an evil man, but wow. After all this, the Lord struck him in his intestines with an incurable disease. Then it happened in the course of time after the end of two years that his intestines came out because of his sickness. So he died in severe pain and his people made no burning for him like the burning for his fathers. He was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years and to no one's sorrow departed. No one's sorrow. This king was hated by everybody, his own wife or wives, his own children. Uh, That's just sad. And yet that is what some people face who see all of their value in this world and yet take no thought of human relations. Now we want to get to enjoy life. And so this I kind of merged together and we'll talk about this enjoyment in verses 18 through 20 of chapter 5. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life which God gives him, for it is his heritage. Now, we must allow that to sink in. It is good and fitting for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good. Now, I'm gonna get, now this might seem like a no-brainer. You think, oh, yeah, yeah, that's fine. Everybody wants that. No, no, I disagree. There are some of us here that practically deny what I just read. And let me give you some examples. Now, these first ones probably won't be us, but I'll get to them. Many on the left would say, we do not deserve joy as long as Americans foul the road with gas-guzzling SUVs, as long as Westerners consume more than their their fair share of the carbon footprint. That global warming places survival of the planet in jeopardy. How can we possibly enjoy another day of carefree living on this earth? Man plagues the earth through overpopulation. How can you dare have those four children that you have? And when criminal trials end with politically incorrect verdicts. All of these steal the joy of people on the left. And we think, go get them, Rod. Well, many on the right would say, We do not deserve joy as long as the government is running amok, trampling down our inalienable rights. As long as liberals in Washington remain fiscally and morally out of control. As long as we suffer the plague of human abortion. As long as we do not get this or that politician elected or this or that politician thrown out. As long as we do not have another conservative Supreme Court judge. We deserve no joy. How can you possibly live a joyful life given these horrendous problems that we face? Many of us practically live like this, and it's wrong. And let me share with you why it's wrong. Good God-honoring issues are worth fighting for. We all know that. But if we predicate our joy in life on doing or achieving this or that with this or that uh, uh, social issue on this earth, It's idolatry. It's straightforward idolatry. 
You cannot predicate your joy on this earth on attaining these things. It's wrong. Your joy must exist only in God above. Your joy must be entirely predicated on the intangible of this earth, not the tangible. Oh, yes, he gives us many pleasures. We revel in the pleasures of life. We revel in the successes of life. But if your joy is in them, you will be disappointed. Just as if your joy is in any human being, you will be disappointed. Just like we talked about with people looking to the next political leader as the savior, as the one that will bring hope, bring restoration of society. These idols separate you from God. They don't draw you closer to God. They separate you. When you have a Paul Hill who casts aside all that he knows about Christianity to shoot one abortionist and his guard, that is wrong-headed. He was nowhere near the path leading to God, leading to joy, leading to contentment, leading to what Ecclesiastes is all about. He's probably one of the many pastors that had no clue what Ecclesiastes was really about. So this is important. These idols must be destroyed. Maintain your desire to attain these earthly goals, these good earthly goals. Just don't predicate your joy. And don't try to destroy other people's joy. You must enjoy each day of this world, each day of this life. People have more joy in prison than in some of these right-wing organizations. It's just not right. So all I'm asking you to do is think carefully what you do each day, where your hope is, where your contentment is, who holds the keys to what you love in this world. Is it God? Or is it the success of some earthly endeavor? Now, in 19, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth and given him power to eat of it, to receive his heritage and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. The blessing of the Lord makes one rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. That's Proverbs 10.22. God adds no guilt with the blessings that he gives us. Many people on this earth will attempt to guilt you into doing or not doing things. That is not a valid path of conviction. You must be convinced from your heart that what Scripture says is right. Or in this case, what Scripture says wants you to do something or wants you to not do something. You need to be convinced. Don't just do it because someone wants you to do it. Do it because God wants you to do it. And... For he will not dwell unduly on the days of his life because God, because God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. Now, some dwelling is natural. It says he will not dwell unduly. And what this is, is it's a reflection on our lives. We are comforted oftentimes by looking in our past and seeing, oh, we have this, we did that. It's, it's, that's all well and good. We just can't have it become our obsession, have it destroy our ability to do anything in this world. If we obsess about the past, we are then checked out of the present, and we are without a plan or hope for the future. We're just then biding our time until we die. Now, what is the joy of your heart, right? It's right there. God keeps him busy with the joy of his heart. The joy of your heart and the joy of my heart are likely different things. They're very similar if they're done right, but yet it's different. God has planted in you, in your heart, desires that I don't have. He's planted desires in my heart that you don't have. And these are good God-honoring desires. 
And God wants you to pursue those because when you pursue those, you will have joy. It's not even the attainment of them necessarily that will bring you joy. It will be doing what God made you to do. I remember once I shared that uh, quote from that runner, that Christian runner that ran in the Olympics and he won the gold. And he said that God had made him to run. He knew it from, from his youth. God made him to be a runner. It was such a wonderful illustration of knowing what it is God wants of you, what he expects of you. And so if you don't know, you want to pray to God. You want to find out. He's hidden it in you. And so you must seek it out. But God has the key. He reveals it to you. So I want to share one more thing about this that isn't as obvious, I think, as when you really just dig into it over and over and over again. And it's this. Let me read from uh, starting at chapter 5, verse 18. Here is what I have seen. It is good and fitting to one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor in which he toils under the sun all the days of his life, which God gives him, for it is his heritage. God gives him life. God gives him the days of his life. So God has given it to him. 19, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, God gives riches and wealth. And given him the power to eat of it or enjoy it, God gives us enjoyment of our riches and wealth. And to receive his heritage and rejoice in his labor, contentment. God gives us this contentment that we seek on this earth. And rejoice in his labor. And this is the gift. Of God. These five things God gives us as a gift. We think we earn them. We think we earn the right to be wealthy, to be happy in our job, but you don't. God has to give it to you. We are busy, 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 but if God doesn't grant it to you, you don't get it. You are then dissatisfied. So see, we must realize that for all of our seeking of satisfaction, it is really about enjoying life in God's world through which we will be satisfied. God wants us first to enjoy what we have before he'll give us more. So we have to learn to appreciate the day-to-day. It's that stop and smell the roses. It's God's roses. And sometimes I think he is irritated with me for not enjoying life as he's uh, devised it for me. Now, let's look at 6.2. A man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor. Okay, so now God has given him riches and wealth and honor. He lacks nothing for himself of all he desires. I mean, that's an amazing statement. He lacks nothing his heart desires. Yet, God does not give him power to eat of it. So see, God has withheld that gift that he's given to others. And it leads to this person leading a wholly dissatisfied life, even though they're wealthy, powerful, and they've achieved all of the desires of their heart. Now, we live in a world that is twisted, yet affects us daily. We know it's good to be wealthy. We know it's good to be famous. We know it's good to be great at this, that, or the other thing and be recognized for it. But yet, it's not as great as the simple enjoyment of our lives. And it is given only by God, and it can be withheld by God at his will. So 
we live and move and have our being in God and our enjoyment of it is entirely predicated on him. It's just interesting. We are creatures and he has the keys to every aspect of our creaturehood. You must seek through him. And we know that when we're indulging in sin, we are turning our back to God. There's no way that there is satisfaction away from God. So don't ever try to convince yourself that sin leads you one step closer to God. No. It leads you away, always away. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the fact that it is you alone who grant us the joys of our heart, uh, you alone that grant even the ability for people to uh, accumulate wealth and to uh, earn and, and these things. And yet, Father, it is you alone also that has the key to enjoyment of that. When we look around at the many people that we know that appear to be striving for something in this world, it just breaks our heart. And Lord, we don't want to be people like that. Please break and destroy the idols that we have in our hearts. Anything that separates us from what we should be seeking in you, we pray, Lord, that you would take it away. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. We thank you for the gift of uh, salvation. And we pray, Father, grant us, uh, grant us a simple faith which relies upon you solely each day for the good that will bring us joy and contentment. We lift up our prayers to you and our desires in Christ's name. Amen.